Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Luke, the first chapter. If you were here last week, you will remember that we spent some time looking at the fact that God is pleased to rescue his people and to deliver them time after time by putting a baby in the womb of a woman. And we looked at this theme particularly leading up to two babies announced in the Gospels. One, the child placed uh, in the womb of Elizabeth Zacharias's wife, John the Baptist, who was the one that was to prepare the way for our Lord. And this week, I want us to turn and look at the second gift of a child at this time, which is the child, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior, given to the womb of a young woman named Mary. Let us read together Luke 1, verses 26 to 38. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold the bondslave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is God's word, and it's eternally true. When we look out at the world, we can see, if we have the eyes to see, people around us who are like Mary. Uh, They're people who many others would call drab. They usually don't uh, drive fancy cars. They don't have fancy property. They're quiet. They're godly. And they are living lives of faithfulness. And since godliness and pride are mutually exclusive, we usually don't hear stories told about these people. They tend to be people who we discover by accident. They don't go around announcing their virtues. They are content to live humbly in God's presence, looking to heaven and to life eternal for their reward. The world looks at these people and it disdains them. It refers to them as people without drive, dull people, drab people, people lacking ambition. Uh, 
They don't wear fancy clothes. Their clothing are good deeds. But these good deeds are often done in secret. In order to see their good deeds, you would have to come upon them unawares like a deer at night, catching them in your, uh, in your headlamps. Uh, and they would not be fond of being caught. It's very hard to spot these people. They have a deep aversion for self-promotion and for talk, uh, especially if the subject of the conversation is themselves and their own good deeds. They don't want recognition from anybody except their Lord. They often live in poverty. They tend not to be highly educated. They frequently live and die in the same place they were born. And if they take trips, it's usually because there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world would be, tra- would be taxed. They don't have an itch to travel. And about the only mark they leave on this earth when they die is the, are the lives that they have touched by their deeds of mercy. They've given a lot of cups of cold water in the name of their Lord. They've clothed the naked. They've visited the lonely. If they die and there's a tombstone erected, the tombstone probably says something quite simple like this. She went about doing good until the good Lord called her home. Or the tombstone of the old colonial cemetery in Savannah, Georgia has the following inscription, Mary Jane Green. To the stranger, her virtues cannot be known. To her friends, her memory is her best epitaph. Now, we don't have a tombstone, regardless of what the Roman Catholic Church and maybe the Orthodox Church say. We don't have a tombstone for Mary, the mother of Jesus. But we do have words of Scripture that give her an epitaph. And some of those words we'll look at this morning and others we'll look at tonight. But what the Bible says about her is that this woman, all generations will call blessed. From the millions of women alive, at that time, God chose this woman. And we don't need to go into uh, thinking of Mary as, as somebody who mediates the grace of God to us yet today. We don't have to pray to her. We don't have to say our rosaries in order to say she is the Blessed Virgin Mary. Because this is what Scripture says about her. And when we look at this tender scene of the gospel here in Luke, the verses that we read, we can remember that John the Baptist was six months older than Jesus. And so here in verse 6, 26, when we see that in the six months of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God spoke to Mary through his angel Gabriel. We see here that uh, the word angel just simply means a messenger. So God sends one of his most mighty, powerful angels to announce the coming of his son. And he announces the coming to Mary. Now, Mary lived in a town and in a part of the land that were despised. The town that she lived in was called Nazareth, and the province she lived in was Galilee. There were three provinces of the Holy Land at that time. There was Judea, and then Samaria, and then Galilee. And Galilee was the top the very top part. And if you remember in the Old Testament, the constant theme of the Israelites, the people of God being told that they are not to worship off in their own homes, their own lands, but they're come to Jerusalem, it would make sense to you that 
the land was despised the further it got from Jerusalem. So you know what they thought about Samaritans, right? Well, now you know what they thought about Galilee. Galilee was even more despicable. Um, it was called Galilee of the Gentiles. And the Gentiles were the Goyim. And uh, I remember my father using the term uh, Sabbath Goyim from New York City. And these were the, the dirty Gentiles that the Jews would hire to uh, do all the tasks that they were forbidden to do on their Sabbath. Goyim has never been a positive term. And so, as you got away from Jerusalem and you went further and further away, you would go up there to Galilee of the Gentiles, and the Jews that lived there were despised because they were people who constantly had to associate with dirty people. After all, you look at the Old Testament, and it's filled with rules about what you eat, what you touch, what you don't touch, all the ceremonial laws, and central to living a godly life was you know, staying away from anything dirty, and Gentiles were dirty, but if you were lived up in Galilee, you had to be around the Gentiles. So it was kind of as if good Jews looked at the people who lived in Galilee and said it's impossible for them to please God. You know, they're far from the apparatus of worship, and then they have to associate with people who are not um, honorable who are uh, goyim, you know, nothings. So this is where Mary, the Virgin Mary, the young Virgin Mary is. She's even further away from Jerusalem than the Samaritans. She lives in Galilee of the Gentiles. She lives among the goyim, and so she's viewed with contempt. Uh, the people up in Galilee also spoke with a rude dialect. Uh, and what we would say today is they had a hick accent. Usually if you say to somebody, you speak like you're from the south, uh, it's not a commendation um, to northerners. Northerners in our country have... Uh, historically, we look at, down at the south. That's a lot of what goes on with the Supreme Court, you know. Uh, telling the South that they're idiots. That's, we've had a major morality lesson in that in the last two weeks. Well, this is, instead of it being the South they looked down on, this is the North, and they even had an accent that identified them. And, you know, we don't like to think about it, but Mary would have had that accent. Mary was in a despised land. She would have had a hick accent. She was a Galilean. And then, the final insult, they're from the town of Nazareth. And... If the people in Jerusalem looked down at the Samaritans and the people in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria looked down at the Galileans, you know that the Galileans had to have somebody to look down on. And they looked down on Nazareth. And we have an idea what they thought of Nazareth when we read that Nathaniel, when he heard of the origin of Christ in disbelief, John 1.46 tells us that he said, can anything good come from Nazareth? He was a native Galilean, Nathaniel was, so we know that the Judeans looked down on the Galileans and the Galileans looked down on Nazareth. Now in the sixth month then, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth. 
a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now, the Bible tells us that Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. At that time, men married somewhere between the ages of 18 and 21. And women married at the age of my daughter, Hannah. They were 13 or 14. If Hannah were in here, I'd have her come up and stand in front of you so you, you could take a look at her. This young woman, Mary, was betrothed. Betrothal was a period of about a year, never longer, sometimes it could be shorter, where a man and a woman were pledged to each other. Now, I, I remind us of this all the time because traditions that aren't explained are dead. The reason in a wedding, if you go to rehearsal or wedding, you'll hear two vows, right? The reason you have two vows in a wedding, will you and do you, is that will you is betrothal. And what we've done is we've gotten rid of betrothal and replaced it with something that's pretty wimpy called engagement. And then we've taken the language of betrothal and clomped it onto the front end of the wedding ceremony so that the first thing we do is we're down here at the floor and we say, will you to the man and will you to the woman? And they both say, I will, I will, future tense. And then you walk up onto the platform and you say, do you? And they say, I do. And the will you is betrothal. That's where they say, I have my own free will. I am not, nobody has a shotgun to me. Nobody's twisting my arm. And I intend now to go ahead and take my vows. Back then it happened about a year before the wedding. All the families would negotiate. It was impious for you to choose a spouse without the approval of your father and mother. It was viewed as a violation of the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, command with a promise. And so the parents would give their agreement normally, and the bride and the groom then would promise that in a year's time they would consummate the marriage. Now, during that time, they were looked at as married, minus consummation. So you had a year's time where there was not to be physical intimacy, but where you were to slowly pull these families together and where the, the man and the woman were to prepare themselves for full union physically. So in that time, it was inappropriate to be intimate. And if it was inappropriate to be intimate, it was particularly inappropriate to be intimate with someone other than your betrothed. In fact, if you were intimate with somebody other than your betrothed, you were divorced, and it was called adultery. Very interesting period of time. Um, so the commitment was as intense as marriage, but all the benefits of marriage hadn't yet come to you. They would come to you at the point of marriage where it would be consummated. This was Mary's condition. She had a man. She had made a commitment. She was married, but the marriage was not yet consummated. She's living up north in a despised land. She has a hick accent. She's 13 to 14 years of age. And this is the womb that our Lord did not abhor. I've needed encouragement this morning, and my encouragement has come from thinking about Mary. 
Sometimes we need a model. Sometimes we need somebody to look at and say, wonderful. And it is appropriate for all of us, men and women, to fall in love with this woman, Mary. But in order to do that, we have to be humble. We cannot be proud and identify with Mary. The Lord intentionally chose to not abhor that womb. The Lord did not come into the womb of Cleopatra. The Lord did not come to the womb of any prominent priest's daughter. The Lord chose this despised and every single aspect of his life. He shows that he knows the brokenness of our lives. And so here it is. It's Mary. The time that she has come to is just prior to the marriage, during this period of betrothal. And so, you know, it's obvious. But the Lord gives us the details of this woman, Mary, and of her betrothed, Joseph. The Lord gives us these details because the Lord believes that these details should have an impact on us. Now, you notice my voice is getting more intense. If I could tell you the uh, number of times that uh, I as a pastor and we as elders uh, have to deal with people who refuse to learn the lesson of Mary, uh, if you had to see what we deal with because of this, uh, none of you would want to do it. And so I, this morning, have the privilege of preaching about Mary to you. And there are practical, practical very timely, very important lessons in Mary. Namely, Mary was a virgin. We sing it. Behold, he abhorred not a virgin's womb. And and we call her the Blessed Virgin Mary, as long as there's nobody around that will hear us because we don't want to be thought of as Roman Catholic. (laughs) But it is her title, the Blessed Virgin Mary. And then we don't get it. We don't get it. We think that sexual impurity is okay. We celebrate Christmas and sexual impurity at the same time, but you can't do that. There are consequences to not being a virgin. Do you know the consequence of living up in Galilee, of living in Nazareth, of having a hick accent, of being betrothed to a man and not being a virgin was that you would not have been a receptacle that God would have used for his son. You know, we like to think that, you know, secondary virginity means that we can all be just as if we had primary virginity. You you know what I'm talking about, the whole abstinence thing. Don't worry, you can have secondary virginity. But do you understand, secondary virginity would not have been a receptacle for our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? I don't think you do. Because you live in a culture that tells you that you can have your rush and purity. Just go ahead and have it and then go ahead and have secondary virginity. If you want to, backslide again and then you can have it again. And and so as churches, we say, well, you know, let's hope you're virgins. And everybody wears white at weddings, right? And you know what white means? Virgin. And fathers that violate their children, you know, we put them in jail. You know, it's cool. And then lives are destroyed. And then everybody lies about why the lives are destroyed. Oh, they're never 
destroyed because people aren't virgins. They're destroyed because, you know, some people made bad choices, you know. And we look at Mary and we say, what is the lesson here? The Bible says all scripture is profitable. Well, that must mean that the story of Mary is profitable. So what does it teach us? Here it is, a few days before Christmas, and we have the story of Mary, and God places it here, and everybody in the country is reading it, they're thinking about it, they're preaching on it, they're singing songs about it, and the Bible says it's profitable. How is it profitable? It's profitable to see that God chose a woman who had nothing earthly to commend her. Only one thing was she had maintained the purity of her womb. Physical. She had not been violated. Her husband had not been dishonorable with his betrothed. Mary had been faithful to her God. And so this angel, this messenger from God, imagine this. Mary never chose to be at the center, at the vortex of anything special. Never. It was inconceivable to her that somebody from Galilee of the Gentiles and Nazareth would be at the center of human history. This angel from God comes down, and his greeting to her is, You are highly favored. And she was a virgin. And so what was her response? Her response was, what? She said, how can this be? I'm a virgin. And that's beautiful. That's beautiful. It's nothing to be ashamed of. How can this be? I'm a virgin. And I say to you, what application does this have to your life and the lives of your children? Have you taught your children that they are to look at Mary and Joseph and that their lives are to be in conformity with these vessels that God chose to father the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to be the womb that carries this, this, this God-man? What have you done to your children that shows that you believe this is profitable and that you're going to tr cause your children to follow in Mary's footsteps? Mary says, how can this be? I'm a virgin. She was greatly troubled, and the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary. You will be with child. You're going to become pregnant. You're going to give birth to a son. You're to name him Jesus. How can this be? I'm a virgin. All of the Gospels, all of the words of Scripture are God-breathed and all of them are profitable. And as it's profitable to meditate on the virginity of Mary, which was the product of the honor of her husband and of her own purity, so it's profitable to think and to meditate each Christmas, each Christmas, on the inconvenience of this pregnancy to this young woman. She's maintained herself. She's pure. She lives by faith. The message comes. She says, how can this be? I'm a virgin. She's troubled. And then she thinks what? She thinks 
Joseph is an honorable man. Joseph knows that he and I have not been intimate. How am I going to explain this pregnancy to my betrothed? Let alone, how am I going to explain it to my future mother-in-law? How am I going to explain this to my neighbors who are going to see the swelling of, of my womb? This was a terribly inconvenient pregnancy. Now, today in America, about a, th- a quarter, 25% of all pregnancies are killed in the womb because they're inconvenient. And again, it would be stupid of us to live in the midst of that bloodshed and not to look at Mary and say, Mary is the perfect candidate for the termination of a pregnancy. But here we have Mary. She was pure. Her husband was honorable. She was a virgin. And the, and, and, and the God-man, the King of kings and Lord of lords, came to rest in her womb. And Mary did not reject that gift. Mary was a willing womb, a willing receptacle. Mary was willing. And she had many, many reasons for not being willing. Think of the thoughts that would have raced through her mind when Gabriel announced this to her. She realized the implications. She and Joseph had been pure with one another. And so she knew the conclusion that he was going to be forced to. And from all appearance, since since the angel had to dissuade Joseph from putting Mary away in silence, and Mary had either not told him by then about Gabriel's message, or she had told him and he simply hadn't believed her. And what of the parents? What of the in-laws, brothers, sisters? What of the neighbors? What do you think they said to her? But Mary, she says solely this. She says, how can this be? I'm a virgin. And the Holy Spirit said this, or the angel Gabriel said this, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Now there are many people today who deny that Jesus was born to a virgin. Many, many people. Uh, These are people who live in a world that they are absolutely certain has rock-hard steel boundaries. And the boundaries are the laws of nature. And nature's God cannot pass by these boundaries. And so they look at this as being the flight of fancy of pious people who came to be devoted to Jesus. And then when he died, they went back and they wrote things that would cause people to worship him. And they easily dismiss the fact that a child was placed in the womb of a virgin. They say, no, we know how pregnancy happens and it doesn't happen that way. But make no mistake about it, a denial of that is a denial of the inspiration of Scripture. It's a denial of truth. Uh, Luke was not a flake. When Luke wrote, he wrote truth and he knew the difference between a dream and a myth and truth. In fact, if you look at the very beginning of this gospel, the first four verses, you'll see the claims. It says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were what? Eyewitnesses 
and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated, eyewitnesses investigated, have investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive. Eyewitness, investigate, consecutive. These are truth claims. In consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. This is a little family joke, but I, I always say, most excellent Theophilus. And my kids recently, one of them said to me, they finally discovered where that came from. It's, it's, it's such a grand phrase, most excellent Theophilus. And then it says, finally, so that you, and this is you, so that you may know what? The what? Well, my Bible says the exact truth, the certainty, the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. The exact truth. So what does it mean? It means that a physician, Luke, he's the author, has been very, very careful to investigate, to get eyewitnesses, to listen to words, to be careful and to write down and to observe the consecutive order so that what is received by us today, 2,000 years later, is the exact truth. And the exact truth is this woman was a virgin and God's Holy Spirit came on her, overshadowed her, and she had a baby in her womb. That's the exact truth. I, every Christmas, make note of the sad day where working in a PCUSA church when we first got married, I got to know the organist of that church, a woman named Helen Berkemeyer. And years later, when I came back to the area to be a pastor of a church myself, I received the denominational magazine and read the account of how that pastor of that church brought into the church a number of academics who study religion. You know the type. And these academics got involved with some of the people of the church, began to have a reading group with them, and they had them read theology. And their idea was, you know, all this study of religion shouldn't just be in the ivory towers, but we should seek to have some common basis, some communication with the people of the church. And the academics and the people of the church got together. Now, fortunately, most of the people of the church were somehow associated with the University of Wisconsin. And, and so actually it was academics with academics, but it was professional religious academics with people that were like statisticians and stuff. So they had to learn a different vocabulary, but they were bright. And so you can imagine a lot of godliness came out of that. Thank you. <laughs> I have a friend over here. <laughs> and so what happened was they began to study. And you know what? I, I have the article if any of you want to read it, but it's very depressing. Because at the end of the article, the theologian, this professional student of religion, said that he was very surprised by the positive attitude of the people in the church because normally he said, when my students study under me, they get depressed. And, you know, I know those people. And to this day, the hair stands up on the back of my head. I defy those men to pervert the souls of my friends. And that's what they did. Because at the end of the article, Helen Berkemeyer was quoted as saying that after the time of studying with these theologians, she came to realize that it didn't matter if Jesus was born in Bethlehem. 
And what she was saying was, none of the details matter. She said, but Jesus exists. And you know something? That's not faith. That's the betrayal of faith. That's the denial of the truth of Scripture. It's not pious. It's not sophisticated. It's the oldest shell game in the world. Hath God truly said? And this poor woman, Helen Berkemeyer, is led astray by false shepherds. Don't ever think that what's at stake in mainline churches is just a different form of religion. It is not. It is what J. Gresham Machen said. Liberalism is a denial of the truth of Scripture. And if you deny the virgin birth of Mary, of Jesus from Mary, if you deny that the Holy Spirit came upon her and that this pregnancy was not the act of any man, you are not a Christian. Because Christians recite the Apostle Creed from the beginning to today. We join together Orthodox, Catholic, Protestants, Baptists, Presbyterians, and we all confess who is conceived of the Virgin Mary, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. Historicity matters. The specific details matter. We do not read a word and honor that word and turn around and say that that word lies to us. It matters that this was a virgin. And boy, if you have a sophisticated attitude when you come to this story and you think that it might not have been a virgin, but don't worry, Jesus exists, you know. Guess what? When it comes time for you to quell the lusts that burn like flames in your heart and you see in front of you Joseph and Mary and you know that Mary was a virgin, guess what? You won't be a virgin. You'll give in to the flames of lust in your heart and the reason is because you don't believe the truth that there was this young woman who did keep herself pure who lived in a despised location in a despised town who had a hick accent and who honored God and who had a a husband who honored God and she was prepared she was quiet she could not believe when the angel came to her she was scared out of her wits and when he told her what was going to happen she looked at him and she said how can this be I, I'm a virgin and guess what that's all we know about Mary <laughs> I mean do you realize that there she is that's her that was her moment that was you know her 15 minutes of fame And from then on, do you know what happens? She suffers. Now, what's with that? I mean, isn't it nice to belong to the evangelical world where we don't have to suffer anymore? Where everything that God has promised us is past tense. We've already received it all. You know? Somebody should have gone to Mary and said that she was seated in the heavenlies. Because then she could have had a positive attitude about what was about to happen. You know, her husband looking at her belly swelling and her living in jeopardy of losing that man and being despised in a town that was despised, in a community that was despised, in a region that was despised, with a despised accent. She didn't get told by the angel, don't worry, we'll handle everything with Joseph. Now we're going to come back to that aspect of it tonight. But what a sweet picture. And then she goes on 
and a sword pierces her. This is how Scripture says. Okay? And we don't see her except every now and then, and the sword continually pierces her. Think about what you know about Mary. You know that his first miracle was done after he told his mother what? Basically, bug off. I mean, literally, that's what Jesus said to his mother when she wanted him to you know, handle this wine situation. And yes, it was truly fermented wine. Okay? And then later, they think he's a little wacko. And he's in this house. And there's such a crowd pressed around him. And so they, she and his brothers or cousins, we don't know what it was, but I say brothers because I'm a Protestant. They go to the house and they, they send a message in the house. Your mother and your brothers are out there. And do you remember what Jesus says? Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And then he says, who are they? They are those who what? Do the will of his Father in heaven. And then later, some woman, some Looney Tunes woman loses it. I got this uh, email yesterday from David Wagner, an hour before the wedding of Eric and Sean. David had just gone to a wedding in Africa, so he wrote me a travelogue of the wedding in Africa. And he said, it's basically the same as our weddings, except that as the bride comes up the aisle, and then as she goes back down the aisle, there are older women in the church. And it's all English, and it's all like, it's, it's probably identical to the words that we have. In fact, he repeated some of it. But he said, as she goes up the aisle and goes down the aisle, there are older women in the church. And he says, they let out this high pitched kind of you know like that and they just scream as they come up and down the aisle and David said that I think he and Elizabeth I think it was Elizabeth after another wedding they went to some of the women and they asked them to teach them this this scream and the woman was just roaring because no man is ever supposed to do it it's just the women and the older women that do it right well you remember that woman that let out that and what she says to Jesus is Blessed, what? Do you remember that? The womb that gave birth to you and the breast that suckled you. And what's the response? You see, from the very beginning, Jesus is a sword that pierces his mother. Do you understand this? Mary is violated by the Holy Spirit and her entire life is, is burned So then you ask yourself, what's the point of keeping yourself a virgin if that gift will result in you being pierced? But I want to tell you, if you follow the Blessed Virgin Mary, a sword will pierce you too. It is a sword of obedience to the living God. And that obedience is going to be costly. As you go into the public high school, you are going to have to live for God. And you are not going to be able to fit in. And when you go to work, you're going to have to be the one man who gives an honest day's labor on the assembly line when everybody else has conspired to give less than an honest day's labor. And you're going to have to bid the contract honestly without getting inside information. And when your parents get old, your wife might have to stay home. And you might not get to have a yacht or a second home because your wife might throw her time away caring for your mother in your home. 
Do you understand? This is the piercing. It starts with the virginity of Mary, the honor of Joseph, and it goes all through our lives, and it is a life of sacrifice. And that's the reason the Bible says that if Jesus was not raised from the dead, we are, of all people, most foolish. Why? Because our lives have been burned on the pyre of sacrifice to this babe of Bethlehem. And why do we do that? Because this baby of Bethlehem came himself to be sacrificed for the sake of purchasing us from hell. Do you understand that? And so it would be unbelievably impious for us to resist being virgins, to resist being an honorable man who doesn't violate this 13 and 14 year old woman, to resist the conspiracy to not give a day's labor for a day's wages, to resist all those who give their elderly parents off to the nursing homes and and to some professional care and who instead are busy earning money. All the ways that we as Christians in our culture say no to the reigning idolatries, it it would be deeply impious, it would be wicked of us for the Son of God to come into this world and to give up His glory and to, to not abhor a virgin's womb and to suffer shame from the moment of His conception in the location that He was resident, in the place that He was born, in the work that He did, in, in, the, in Him not having a place to lay His head. All through His life, He gives Himself as a sacrifice and obedience. It would be it would be wicked for us to say, well, I'm going to have sex before marriage and I'm going to have a woman because the flames of passion work in me and I'm going to have the career that I want and I'm going to have the cars that I want, the home that I want, and all my children are going to be pretty and my appearances are going to be perfect. And you know something? No. If God had come to me and told me I was going to get pregnant, I know how that would have looked And I'm sorry, I know this isn't right, but you know, it's going to be another woman. It ain't going to be me. And it ain't going to be my daughter. Do you see this? So are you a Christian or are you a pagan? Are you righteous or are you wicked? Would you accept the Son of God in your womb? Would you accept him coming into the womb of the woman to whom you are betrothed? Would you lower yourself to have the shame? Or do you have a trajectory and you know what God wants from you? Every day and every way the world will get better and better. And then you're a good American, but you aren't a Christian. You do not know God. God is pleased with the Sikingas. How many churches have you lost? Three? Three churches. Why did he lose them? Because he would not go along to get along. It wasn't that he didn't love the people. It wasn't that he didn't know the word. If you know Daryl Sickinga at all, you know he knows the word of God. (laughs) But you know something? He wasn't just going to baptize any baby that came along. Their parents would have to have faith. And he wasn't going to just marry anybody that came along. It was going to have to be believers, both of them. And he wasn't just going to bury everybody saying they're all in heaven. He was going to have integrity. 
And so now he's living in a trailer in Michigan. And to all appearances, he's a failure. Does Daryl do Ruth know God? His wife was discouraged for a period of time. Did you see Daryl falter in his commitment to his wife as they lived in our midst? Did you see that? Not an ounce. He was proud of his wife. And I'll bet you anything that when the angel came to Joseph and said, take her, don't divorce her, Joseph was proud of his virgin as her belly swelled, as everybody began to talk. You know, every Christmas, I get embarrassed because I preach this sermon every Christmas, but I don't think anything is more appropriate to us than studying the Virgin Mary and Joseph. When you think of the number of kids killed in our country, when you think of the sexual immorality that surrounds evangelicals, I think one Sunday a year, we will go back to the Virgin Mary. We will go back to her betrothed, Joseph. We will see the response and we will make a decision whether or not we will lead our children to virginity, whether we will honor God in this church sexually, whether we will honor God by honoring babies. And do you know something? If we make decisions that these are our commitments, we will pay a price. But the glory, unbelievable. Can you imagine in heaven the place that Mary has? Paul gave birth to much of the New Testament in writing. Mary, she just gave birth to Jesus. Can you imagine how you will greet her? What was it like? How did you handle it standing under the cross? What did you think? And, and when he rejected you in front of those multitudes at, at the home that night, what, what went through your mind? Were you mad at him? When he stayed back in Jerusalem and you had to waste all that time going back, and then he rebuked you saying, didn't you know that I had to be in my father. How did you feel? Was Joseph mad? And, and by the way, what happened to Joseph? He disappears. You know? And did you resent it when you had to leave your extended family after giving birth because, you know, here was after Jesus? Did you resent having to go to Egypt? What was Egypt like? Were you lonely? You know? From the very beginning, each one of the four Gospels drives home in their own particular way the reality about Christ which made the Jews reject him and hate him. The fact that he was the Son of God. John's Gospel begins with these words, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Mark begins the Gospel with this statement, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Luke begins his gospel, as I already read, giving a detailed account of the process by which God's Son came into this world. And Matthew begins with the details surrounding Christ's birth 
And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he tells us that this birth of Jesus was in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy found in Isaiah 7.14. Quote, Now all this was done, the virgin birth, so that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying what? Behold what? A virgin shall conceive, shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which being interpreted is God with us. And so Mary, by the power of the Holy Spirit, was with child. That child is our salvation. There was nothing easy about this sacrifice that God was asking Mary to make. The pain did not end from this moment until the day that she stood beneath the cross he was dying on. She gave up her normal life to nurture and love the Christ child. It was her breasts that fed him. It was her arms that held him. It was her hands that diapered him. He gave her her first stretch marks, and because of her pregnancy with him, she was never a private figure again. And yet God had chosen her, and out of all of the 12 to 14-year-old girls in the land at that time, Mary, betrothed to Joseph, quietly living in the province of Galilee, the town of Nazareth, Mary answered Gabriel meekly and quietly, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. And so, as in the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came upon her. And as the shadow of God's presence hid the tabernacle in the wilderness, so the Most High overshadowed her. And she conceived in her womb was with child. And one day that child nurtured in that womb, that tender young womb, that child came to be called the Son of God. And so she is indeed the Blessed Virgin Mary. Let us pray.